these doors every day. We open them, we lock them, uh, we knock on them. And a locked door, we would say, protects us. And an open door welcomes us. Or says we're, uh, a locked door says we're closed, and an open door says we're open. And metaphorically, an open door can be like, okay, there's an opportunity here. There's an open door. Uh, metaphorically, a closed door, we feel like, okay, that opportunity is gone. Like, it's just not working. It's a, it's a closed door. And doors, they separate spaces one from another, inside from the outside, or just one space from another, one store, you know, bathroom from the hallway, a bedroom from the rest of the house. And so doors, they separate spaces. And normally, we use doors without even thinking about them at all. Like, when you came in today, you probably didn't notice that that, even notice the door, like, oh, wow, this is a pretty cool door here. This is neat. But if it was closed and locked, and you saw the people in here, or there was nobody in here, and you came expecting it to be open, like, you would feel some stuff in that moment. Like, I expected this door to be open. Like, I went to my favorite restaurant, but it was closed. Or I went to my favorite shop, but it was closed. Or I wanted to get coffee, but it was closed. Or I came to this church building, and am I here at the wrong time? Did it close down? Am I not welcome? You know, when a door can actually create a lot of emotions in us, if it, we expect it to be one thing, but it's another. And this is going to be a concept that Jesus uses in this passage. And as we're looking at the gospel according to Luke, we're in the middle chunk of it, uh, chapters 9 through 19. And this chunk is begun in chapter 9 where Jesus says, uh, or Luke the writer says, uh, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And so he's heading toward Jerusalem, and it's, you know, like 10 chapters of traveling to Jerusalem. And it wouldn't have taken, you know, 10 chapters of time. I mean, chapters 1 through 9 covered like, like 30 years. Uh, and then 9 through 19 covers him going to Jerusalem. This would have taken maybe a week, maybe if he was like going straight there. But he had a lot of stops on the way, so maybe this was like a week or two or three. As he's going through towns on his way to Jerusalem, going with other people who are going for Passover, the feast that, one of the three feasts that all the Jews would have traveled to Jerusalem for. And so he's migrating, pilgrim, doing the pilgrimage with them. And as he goes, he's talking about the kingdom. And his big theme is respond rightly to the kingdom of God before it's too late. There's a lot of urgency. A lot of the stories he tells and the commands he gives is like, look, the time of decision is now. Like, respond before it's too late. Uh, you don't know when the, the kingdom is going to fully come. You don't know when you're going to die. And so respond before it's too late. Like, this is, this is the time of decision. And he's teaching um, multiple levels or kinds of people. The, there's the crowd of people who are maybe, like, interested or have been healed or are looking for healing. Uh, there's his critics, people who are like, we don't, we're not sure about this guy. Like, we think he's kind of upsetting things, and we don't want that to happen. And then there was the committed, his disciples. And he's teaching all of them, how do you respond rightly? The critics, you're not responding correctly to God's kingdom. The, uh, the crowd, like, you need to respond correctly. His disciples helping them respond correctly to God's kingdom, too. And this scene that we're going to see is uh, uh, verse 22, Luke chapter 13 says, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And so he's going along, teaching as he goes. And then he has a, this part, this teaching we're going to hear today is uh, prompted by somebody asking a question about salvation, is uh, you know, being saved or being rescued, being redeemed. And God's kingdom is, based, is synonymous with salvation. Like God's kingdom coming is saving you from this world and everything that's in it and from ourselves. God coming and bringing his kingdom, his will to the earth and saving us from this destruction, this death, this 
uh, sin uh, that we find ourselves in. So that's what God's kingdom is. And so Jesus covers two things, the door to be saved and his desire to save. That makes sense? There's a door that you must go through to be saved. And he also talks about his desire to save people that want to go through that door. So there's the, the door to be saved and the desire to save. And so don't answer this out loud, but a question for you is, how do you know if you are saved? And maybe you're like, I don't really know what that word means. That's okay. Um, we'll get into it more. But how do you know if you are saved? How can you know that that's the case, that you are saved, you're in God's kingdom, um, Jesus is, has rescued you and will rescue you? How do you know that? Maybe just take 10 seconds to think to yourself, how, what would I say? How would I answer that question to me? So as I said, Jesus, this teaching he does is prompted by a question, verse 23. So verses, uh, chapter 13, verses 22 through 30, cover the door to be saved, Jesus' door. And verse 23, uh, a person, it says, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And we need uh, two things to cover to understand where this question is coming from. Will those who are saved be few? Few. This is what somebody's asking, calling him Lord, so seeing a lot of respect, maybe perhaps even thinking he's God, the God of the Old Testament come, or at least the king of this kingdom that he's been talking about. Lord, will those who are saved be few? And so the first question we need to understand this is, what is salvation? What is salvation? And salvation has two parts to it. We're saved from something, and we're saved for something. We're saved from something, and we're saved for something. And the... Uh, the salvation event that was like the, the paradigm for how the people of Israel, the Jewish people, understood salvation was the Exodus. And if you're not familiar with the Exodus, um, God's people were in slavery uh, under oppression in the nation of Egypt. And then God says to a guy named Moses, hey, I want you to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. I want you to bring them out. So you want, I want to, you to save them from oppression and slavery but also save them for. It wasn't like, okay, guys, you're out. And so, you know, you guys can just kind of do your thing now. He doesn't know. They're saved from something, from slavery, from oppression, and saved for something. He says, I want to bring them out so they may come to the mountain where they're going to worship me. That was always the goal. Moses said it over and over again. I'm going to bring, we want them to come out so we can worship our God. And so they're saved from that and saved for worshiping God, a loving relationship with God, obedience. Um, being in relationship with him, saved from and saved for. And at Mount Sinai, they receive the Ten Commandments. They worship God. He talks about, this is what I've done for you, and now in light of that, this is who you are. And because that's what I've done and that's who you are, now I want you to do these Ten Commandments. That kind of was like the, uh, the foundation. All the other commands are really like trying to figure out how to obey those in real life. And so another way, Jesus, we've talked about it, is that we're released and restored. That was Jesus' mission. I'm going to release people from the things that are hurting them, holding them down, pushing them down, sickness and disease and the religious system. I'm going to release people from that and from your sins. I'm going to forgive of your sins. You're going to be released, and you're going to be restored to how you are supposed to be. That's what God's kingdom is. That when God's kingdom comes, it releases people and it restores people. It were saved from and saved for. You know, if we went back to Luke, uh, let me just read it quickly. Luke chapter 1. 68 through 75. This is before Jesus is born. Um, this is people 
uh, talking about, getting excited about his birth. And uh, Zechariah, the dad of John the Baptist, has this song he, he gives after he's been mute for several months during his son's uh, or during his wife's pregnancy with John the Baptist. And when he is able to speak, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people. Redeem means to sit, bring out of slavery. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy he promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might now serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness uh, uh, and in the forgiveness of sins. And so they're saved from the hand of their enemies and saved for worship of God. And so salvation equals God's kingdom. Salvation is found under God's rule and in God's presence. That's how he created the world, that we are supposed to live under his rule and in his presence as his representatives, representing and reflecting what he's like to the world. And so the kingdom of heaven, and think about the Lord's Prayer, is where God's will is done. The Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, you know, our Father, Barton Heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed may you be respected and honored as king. May your kingdom come, may your will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. And so the kingdom of heaven is God's will, his rule, and his presence coming onto earth as it is in heaven. And, but that's, so that was all answering why salvation. What, you know, what is salvation? This guy says, well, those who are saved be few. So, okay, what is salvation? What does it mean to be saved? Secondly, why this question about how many? Why was he, you know, why is this on his mind? Like, are there only going to be a few of us, Jesus? Like, why is that, you know, pertinent um, to the topic? Well, as we saw last week, right before this, he talks about the, Jesus talked about the small beginnings of the kingdom, um, that there's a small mustard seed that's planted. And it's like yeast being put in dough. And so there's a small beginning, and it works to become this big thing. And so that was right before this. So maybe this guy is like, you're kind of talking in, about small things, Jesus. You're using them to describe the kingdom. So there's, a, there's just going to be a few of us? Is this not going to be a big kingdom? Um, but also, it, it's like, okay, Jesus, is this going to be all of Israel? Because this is Israel's promised Messiah. That's what Jesus says. Is this going to be all of Israel or just a subset of Israel? Uh, a term that maybe you're familiar with, but I'm not going to fully explain, is there's this remnant theme in Israel. Like every all of Israel's gone astray, and yet there's this remnant, there's a subset of Israel that's still faithful to God. So it's like all Israel, Jesus, or this little subset, this remnant that stayed faithful to you? And it's an important question. Who's in, who's out? Uh, who's going to be in this thing and who isn't? All Israel, just a few of us, you know, half of us? And Jesus gives his answer in verse 24. This is how he responds. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So strive, fight, struggle, wrestle. Those are some synonyms for this word. To enter through the narrow door. And so a guy comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, let's talk about who's going to be saved. Is it just a few of us? And then Jesus answers with a command. He doesn't explain to the guy, yeah, this is, there's only be a few, and here's the few that it's going to be. He actually just responds with a command, um, and it's kind of like, well, let's talk about you. Um, you're asking are a few going to be saved, and he says, well, let me tell you, those who strive to enter to the narrow door, they're going to be saved. And it's like, let's talk about you. Let's make this personal. Let's not make this conceptual. And why strive? He says, because many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able to. And so he doesn't answer if you are going to be saved. What he actually answers is how many won't be. He doesn't say, like, yes, few. He says, well, I'm not going to talk to that. Let me tell you 
a lot of people won't be. And then he gives this little parable, starting in verse 25 through 27. He says, When uh, once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. So this parable has like two rounds in it. Round one is the master has uh, shut his door, and then he makes it very personal. It's not like, oh, there's a master, and then some people. He says, the master shut the door, and then you came, you, talked to this person he's talking to, you came and knocked on the door. He puts them in the story, talking about them. And they stand outside and knock, and his response is, I don't know you. And if you think about it, who, you know, who do we let through our door? It's people that we know, right? Uh, or we know where they came from. Like, hey, I'm Bill from Woodstock Heating and Air. Oh, yeah, come on, Bill, you're coming in to service my furnace. But just, we don't just let anyone in our door. It's people we know or people we know where they came from, people we expect. And so he tells them this, like, you're going to knock on the door, and the master's going to get up, and he's going to say, I don't know you. Depart from me. Get out of here. Like, why are you trying to get in my house? And then round two of this is then, uh, then you'll begin to say, uh, verse 26, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And so he's like, you're going to knock on the door, the master's going to say, I don't know you, and then you're going to say, yeah, but um, we ate with you, we drank with you, you taught in our streets, you, you know us, like we were around, we, we saw you, you were in our village. And then he still says, I don't, I don't know you, depart. And so it's not just that many won't be saved, but as many will think they are saved when they are not. It's not just that many won't be saved, but many will think they are saved when they're not. These people coming to the door are thinking, Jesus and I, we're good, we're bros, you know, like I like his stuff on Facebook, uh, and I, I know you. And he's like, no, I, I don't know you, and so depart from me. And so the question was, will, the, will few be saved? And Jesus' answer is, many will think they're saved when they aren't. And then he goes on to describe what will it be like for those people who thought they were saved but then are not. Verses 28 and 29. It says, in that place, so he says, depart from me all you workers of evil. And then in 28 it says, in that place, meaning where they depart to, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. So basically he's describing what is it going to be like to be on the outside looking in. They knocked, they wanted to get in, and what's it going to be like on the outside looking in? This is where you're going to be. Remember, doors separate spaces. This door separates two spaces. In the kingdom, out of the kingdom. What's it going to be like for you when you're outside looking in? And he says there's going to be weeping, sadness, mourning, regret. There's going to be gnashing of teeth. I, if you are like, I have no idea what that means, you know, join the club, I was in there chilling, gnashing of teeth, I never like say that, like, you know, Facebook gives you a little prompt, how are you feeling right now? I'm gnashing my teeth. You know, you guys can try that this week, see what happens, how many people say, like, what are you talking about? Um, but basically it means grinding or biting down, the purpose could be for pain or anguish, you know, like if somebody has a broken leg and you got to reset it, it's like, okay, you give a stick to like bite down on it, so there's this like pain of biting down on it. But then there's also anger, I don't know about you, but Sometimes my mom talked to me with clenched teeth. Stop that right now. So it can be anger, you know, the clenched teeth. I'm sure none of that happened to you guys. It's just me. It's fine. Um, so this is pain or anger. There's mourning. There's regret. There's sadness in there. And the outside looking in, and he says, when you see, you're going to be here looking, 
And you're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets, meaning the patriarchs of the Old Testament. God chose Abraham and his family to make them in the nation of Israel. Abraham's son was Isaac. Isaac's son was Jacob. They're the patriarchs of Israel's faith. You're going to see them and you're going to see the prophets sitting in the kingdom, but you yourselves left cast out, left out. And then he gives this vision in uh, the next verse, verse 29. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. So it's not just like, hey, it's going to be the faith, only the faithful people in Israel will be in the kingdom. No, it's uh, all nations are going to be in the kingdom. Jesus' great commission, go and make disciples. Well, he says, so let me back up. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in earth, right? If you went to Mexico or something, they might say, hey, United States, you don't have jurisdiction here. There is no place that anybody can say to Jesus, you don't have jurisdiction here. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And based on that all-encompassing authority, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. I have the authority for you to go to all nations to tell them, I am king. Respond to me. It doesn't matter who their president is, who their king is, who their whatever is. Uh, you have, I'm telling you, go make disciples of all nations. And so Jesus is saying here, in the future, when you're on the outside looking in, you're going to see these people from all nations, every tribe, tongue, and language. And when John gets a picture of the future in Revelation, uh, he sees every tribe, tongue, uh, and nation around the throne of Jesus, around God, praising him. And so this comes true. And this vision comes out of Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, uh, that there would be every tribe, tongue, and nation entering through the door to the banquet hall of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, many in Israel are going to assume they're saved, and they're not but people from many other nations are going to come and take part, and you're going to be on the outside looking in. Those nations are going to take your spot. And then in verse 30 he says, And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And so there's this reversal. Those you would not expect to be in the kingdom of God are going to be in. Those who are last, and you say, surely these people aren't good enough. There's going to be this reversal that people you don't expect to be in are going to be in. And so what does Jesus tell us? Let's just start summarizing this. What does Jesus tell us about how to be saved? First, there's a door you must enter. There's a door you must enter. Secondly, you must be let in by Jesus. He's in charge of the door. He's, this is his door. He's, you know, this is, you have, he has to let you in. And only those Jesus knows can enter. I didn't quite even try to do that cool rhyme. It just kind of came out when I was working on it. So only those Jesus knows can enter, which makes it, that's why it's a narrow door. There's one, you know, there's one way to get in. It's not like this big old door or a bunch of different doors just answer, enter through any of them. It's Jesus' door. Jesus' door is the only one you can enter through. It's narrow and it's exclusive. So only those Jesus knows can enter. Secondly, but anyone Jesus knows can enter. Not just Jewish people, not just Israelites, anybody, all nations, every tribe, tongue, and language. So in that way, it's very inclusive, inclusive of all people who are willing to come through this one door to make it into the kingdom. And Jesus tells us, many will seek to enter and be turned away. The door will be closed and it will be too late. Jesus doesn't know them. It's too late to enter at that point. And so what's the point Jesus is making? Two of them. Don't assume you are saved. Don't assume you are saved. And what, what would make us assume that we're saved, that we're in when we're not? And he really, you know, there's multiple things. One would be religious upbringing. 
that these are people who are like, we're good Jewish people. We're on the way to Passover with you. Uh, we're doing the stuff we're supposed to do. We're brought up to worship God. We have this religious upbringing. Like, um, so, of course, we're going to be in. And we might, you know, for us, we might grow up Christian. Um, but the point is you cannot inherit salvation from you know, your parents or your lineage or whatever it is. Like, religious upbringing does not mean we're saved. Second, religious involvement. They say, Jesus, we ate and drank with you. Uh, we were hanging out with you. And so us being like, you know, involved in church stuff, stuff, religious involvement does not mean that we are saved. Thirdly, religious teaching. You taught in our streets, Jesus. We listened to you. But religious teaching, just hearing it and knowing what Jesus says does not save us. Because Jesus, over and over again, you must hear it and you must do it. And he calls them, verse 27, you are doers of evil. You've heard me but you're still doing evil. You're not taking my words to heart. Fourthly, religious language. Uh, they call him Lord. Lord, you know us. But just calling Jesus Lord uh, doesn't make us saved. I mean, Jesus said uh, back in chapter 6, why are you calling me Lord and not doing what I say? Like, the, if we actually think he's our Lord, then we ought to be trusting him, surrendering to him, obeying him. And so if we're calling Jesus Lord but not doing what he says, then, or even calling him Savior... But he says, if I'm your Lord, you should be doing what I'm saying. Um, yeah, but you're, you're not. So religious upbringing, religious involvement, religious teaching, religious language do not save us. Only those Jesus knows can enter. And none of those religious things we talked about mean Jesus knows us. Because anyone can claim to know Jesus, right? But Jesus only lets the people in that he knows. Does Jesus know you? And... One illustration of this, this happens over and over again. I, when we were, Katie and I were in college and then working with a campus ministry in uh, Stevens Point, Wisconsin, uh, the church we went to was a pretty big church. It was an evangelical free church. At the time, it was maybe, I don't know, 800 to 1,000 800 people. And so we would sit in the chairs, like you are doing now, and we would hear the senior pastor preach uh, and it was like, yeah, we're, we're listening to his teaching. We're here listening to him. I know him. I'm going to recognize his face anywhere. And it happens. I go to conferences for like the our denomination. I just had one last month, and I was like, there he is. And uh, at one point, I was walking behind him to my car. But yet, if I was like, hey, Pastor Brian, how's it going? Or I came to his house like, hey, but can I come in for a little bit? He'd be like, I, I don't know you, right? Like, you know, it's a big church. We never had a personal conversation. He was the guy that preached that I listened to, um, and I enjoyed it. But it was like, if I was like, hey, Pastor Brian, how are you doing? Can I come in? Can I have a meal with you? It'd be like, I'd be pushing my way on the door, and he'd be like, looking out, like, no, I don't, I don't know who you are. But I, I, went, I mean, not saying that like, I wasn't saved, but just an illustration of like, these people are like, Jesus, we were hanging out. We were listening to your teaching. We know you. And he's like, but I don't know you. I, I don't know who you are. And so for us, our question is, does Jesus know you? So that's the first. Don't assume you are saved. Don't assume. Second point is, rather strive to enter through the narrow door now before it's too late. Strive to enter through the narrow door before it's too late. What does it mean to strive to enter? Well, we're told only those Jesus knows can enter. And so strive to be known by Jesus and so the question would be, who is known by Jesus? And we'll come back to that at the end. And so that was the biggest section of this passage. Now the next section, that was Jesus' door. The second is Jesus' desire. Chapter first, 13, verses 31 through 35. And this begins with him saying, 
At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go down on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And so these Pharisees, who have often been his critics, uh, are warning him. Maybe these are some that are actually sympathetic to Jesus. We know some were. Um, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, John chapter 3. Joseph of Arimathea comes and gets Jesus' body when he's dead and puts him in his own tomb. He was a member of the council. And so some of the religious leaders are like Jesus. They're trusting him, wanting to follow him. And so that could be some of them. It says some of the Pharisees. Um, and then they say Herod wants to kill you. He's the, the king over that area, the Jewish king over that, that the Romans have put on the throne. It's like a puppet king. And so he's they're like, Herod wants to kill you. And his response is, well, you go back and tell Herod. <laughs> he's like, I'm not afraid of this. And he calls him, tell Herod that fox, which, by the way, this, this like fox like appeared in our decorations like a couple years ago. And pe- we've been like, what do we do with it? And then it got put up on the Friday. And it was like, this is like one of two passages where foxes are mentioned. And so here we are. Uh, it was meant to be. So he says, go tell Herod that fox. You know, it's kind of like an insult. Like, you're crafty or even like you're kind of weak and small. Like, I'm not afraid of you. Like, go back and tell him, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to do what I came to do. I'm going to complete my mission. And I'm going to die, go to die where all prophets die. In Jerusalem. And then he does this lament for Jerusalem, which a, a lament is like, well, I'm going to hold my funeral for Jerusalem in a way. That could be what he's saying. Is like, it's like you're dead, and I'm going to hold your funeral. And so he says in verse 34, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. So Jerusalem is the prophet killer. And those who reject prophets are rejecting God because God's sending prophets. The prophets are sent when the people of God have stopped listening to God. And so prophets are sent by God to like get their attention, like, wake up! Like, listen to your God. If you don't, this is what's going to happen. And Jesus is saying, you guys just kill him. You don't want to listen to God. And then he says, uh, continues in verse 34, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And this is just a super tender and kind, compassionate, loving picture. It was a common image for God in the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, me, as God's son, in the flesh, I wanted to gather you, just as God always talked about how he wanted to gather you. And I just wrote down, I you know, just copied from one of the books I read on this, and here's how it described what is happening in this image. The picture here is of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings to protect them. There are stories of exactly this. After a farmyard fire, those cleaning up have found a dead hen, scorched and blackened, with live chicks sheltering under her wings. She has quite literally given her life to save them. It is a vivid and violent image of what Jesus declared he longed to do for Jerusalem, and by implication, for all of Israel. So notice what Jesus is saying. I want to lay down my life for you. I want to. This isn't a have to. God, my father, told me to do it, so I'm just getting it over. I want to lay I want to die for you. I want to die on top of you, sheltering you, saving you, rescuing you. I want to die instead of you. I want to give my life to save you. 
So it's this very tender, compassionate image for the city he knows he's going to and that won't listen to him and they're going to kill him. That's what he says. I wanted to die for you. I wanted to save you, but you were not willing. Then in verse 35, he says, what are the consequences of this, the result? Uh, your house is forsaken. You're not going to see me until you, you say, blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord, which could refer to a couple days from this moment when Jesus is in Jerusalem and the people from that have come up with them. Jerusalem doesn't welcome him like this, but Palm Sunday, they lay palm branches down as he's entering Jerusalem. They're implying, you are the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You are the king we've been waiting for. But Jerusalem doesn't welcome him in that way. It could also refer to his second coming. He's come once. He's going to come again uh, to bring salvation to his people and judgment to those who rejected him in coming uh, once again, hearing it. But basically the point is God has forsaken his, the house of Jerusalem and left it to become a desolation. And so notice in these verses the desires. Herod wants to kill Jesus. Jesus wants to gather Jerusalem. Jerusalem doesn't want to come to Jesus. This is about Jesus' desire to save people who don't want to be saved. They don't want him to be their Lord. And Jesus, he brings bad news. Like, your house is forsaken. It's going to be desolate. Uh, but the bad news is with the desire that it provokes repentance. Uh, it's been very... Some of these passages in Luke, I've never like you know, dug into them super in depth, but it's just been um, remarkable to me how often Jesus will say very hard words to people. But there's never like, good riddance. It's always like, but I, you can still do this. Like, he's woes to the Pharisees. Like, you guys are hypocrites. You're terrible. You're leading people astray. But he says, but give God what's inside and you will be clean. There's always this, you know, as uh, Peter told, or sorry, Jesus told his disciples, you know, with man this is impossible. With God it is possible. Like, as bad as you are, there's still a chance for you. And so making this personal, only those Jesus knows will be saved. But anyone Jesus knows, no matter who you are, what you've done, what the color of your skin is, uh, where you've come from. If you know, if Jesus knows you, you will be saved. And so how do you know you're saved? How would we um, know that we are? That was the question we asked at the beginning. Um, Jesus, you know you're saved if Jesus knows you. And whom does Jesus know? Who are the people that Jesus would know? If we go back to the image, an image from chapter 5 in Luke, Jesus, people are like, why are you hanging out with all these sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, people who are no goods and low lives have messed up their life. And Jesus says, well, um, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. And so I've called to come, call sinners to repentance. And so how, if you take that image, Jesus is a doctor, how does a doctor get to know somebody? Oh, hey, Mitch, welcome back, you know. It's that, it's that we go to them often, right? Like, if you go to the doctor one time, it's kind of like, oh, it's you know more of a, uh, factory line. You get in, you get out. But if you're going there often for issues, asking doctor for things, they begin to know you. They know you, your face, your name, what's going on in your life. And so the door that Jesus is in charge of, imagine it's a doctor's office door. And it's like, the people that I know, the people that come to this door often needing me, needing what I have to offer them, needing help and healing from me. And Jesus we see here, he wants us to come to him a lot. Jesus knows those who come to him often for help and healing, who bring their needs to him, saying, 
I don't know how to do life. I need your wisdom. I need your forgiveness. I need your guidance. I need your protection. I need your strength, Jesus. I need you. We bring our needs to the doctor. It's people who come to him for release and restoration, but not just telling him problems then leaving. Because Jesus says, you know, we talked earlier, like, why do you call me Lord, or why do you call me your doctor? I listen to your problems, and I give you advice, and you don't do it. It's obvious you don't want to be healthy. It's like, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Why do you call me your doctor and not do what I say, That the things that would get you healthy and freedom and to live? And so it's not enough just to tell God our problems and then leave, but we listen to the doctor and do what he says to get better. And Jesus says, I'm calling people to repentance. I want calling you out of something. Turn from those things that are killing you and turn to me. I'm telling you how you can get right with God, how you can be restored to how you were created to be a human in this world. And we would call it surrender in our mission statement. And you might be like, well, what is surrender? You know, it's like waving the white flag. Like, I give up. You know, that's sometimes what happens. Like God just trying to get through us. And finally, like, I give up. I'm waving the right flag. And one way I think we can understand surrender is we start saying it's all about you and it's all up to you. Instead of it's all about me, it's all up to me. Surrender is it's all about you, Jesus, and it's all up to you. That's what surrender looks like and sounds like. And so that's the image of a doctor, but the image here also is of the, the hen who wants to gather her chicks. And so Jesus will save anyone who comes under his wings. And maybe it's like, well, strive, strive to do this? Why strive? I thought, you know, Ephesians 2, it's by not by works, but by grace that you're saved. Why is there this striving, this working, this effort? Um, one phrase that can be helpful for you in understanding the Bible, where you're like, wait, grace here, but then you say, make every effort, do all this work. Um, it's because grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. It's, and why does it take effort to be in God's grace? It's because everything in us and around us pulls us away from it. Everything in us and around us says, it's all about you and it's all up to you. And we live that way. It's all about me. Like we get offended. We're most offended by the sins people do to us rather than what we do to them. And we make it up to us. Like I need to be better so that God can love me. And it's not all about us. It's not all up to us. And so we need to strive against that. That uh, current inside of us that pulls us towards it's all about me, it's all up to me. And, and in our world, it's all pushing us. So we need to strive because everything in us is pulling us away from him. And so we strive, we work, we put effort in to be known by Jesus. And we do that by going to him all the time. Surrender, it's all about you. It's all up to you. And there's joy in that. When we finally let go, it's like, okay, fine. It's all about you. I'm going to make it about you, not about me. I'm going to make it up to you. It's not on me to get myself right with God. We're going through this period of Lent, um, which isn't, you know, it's not in the Bible. Um, you know, Advent isn't in the Bible either, leading to Christmas. But it's like, are there things that we can do that are helpful? I mean, sitting in rows isn't really in the Bible either, but or sound systems. But is there things that we can do to help us to do this? And Lent is one of those times leading to the Good Friday and Easter, leading to the cross where it's like, Jesus, I'm coming to you. Here's all the stuff I've got going on. And it helps us to be like, let me clear out things that are crowding out God and let me try to return back to him with all my heart. And really, really Lent is leading us to the bird who died to save us, inviting us to come under his wings for salvation. And so Jesus says here, uh, are few going to be saved? Well, strive to be known by me. That's how you'll be saved. And we're known by him by bringing our needs to him. Let me, let me pray, and then we're going to do something 
practical together to do this in real life. Father, you give us grace upon grace that there is just so much you want to give us. And we often just do not believe how good you are. Lord, would you help us to be people who are humble, that bring ourselves to your Son for healing, for hope, for health. Lord, we want to be people who are known by him. In the name we pray. Amen.